The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Today I'd like to explore with you how we might cultivate loving-kindness in body, mind, and heart. So in this tradition, there are two basic types of meditation, samatha and vipassana. Samatha in Pali means calm, a mind that is serene, collected. Vipassana, as many of you know, means insight, seeing clearly, seeing things as they really are. And this means seeing the truth of dukkha, which is unsatisfactoriness, anicca, impermanence, and anatta, not self. So for most of us, um, vipassana meditation is our daily practice. But samatha meditation also plays a key role in the early teachings of the Buddha. In fact, the two go hand in hand. We need the depth of samatha, calm, in order to penetrate fully the practice of vipassana, insight or wisdom. And at the same time, the end goal is not a quiet mind, but a mind that is free. But cultivating a quiet mind helps us to cultivate the insight that liberates. An image that we often hear in this Buddhist tradition is that of a bird flying towards freedom. And that bird can't fly with only one wing. It can't fly only with tranquility meditation. And it also can't fly only with insight meditation. So the bird's two wings are compassion or loving-kindness and wisdom. And both need to be cultivated. Without wisdom, loving-kindness can fall into its near enemy, attachment. And compassion can fall into its near enemy, pity. In the same way, without loving-kindness or compassion, Insights can remain dry and infertile. In the Dhammapada, the Buddha says, there is no meditative absorption for one without insight. There is no insight for one without meditative absorption. With both, one is close to nirvana. So by meditative absorption, the Buddha is referring to deep states of concentration and calm. And what the Buddha is saying here is that with both concentration practice and insight practice, one is close to full awakening. So what I'm uh, hoping to explore with you today is the complementarity between loving-kindness meditation and insight meditation. And my hypothesis here is that both are all about connection. Insight meditation is when we connect to our real, present moment, lived experience. And true loving-kindness is when we connect 
to serving the well-beings of all beings everywhere, including ourselves. And in fact, the two are completely linked. They're inherent in each other, and the two practices nourish each other. If you cultivate wisdom and insight, your loving-kindness grows. Don't ask me how this happens, but it does. And if you cultivate loving-kindness, your wisdom grows. So insight requires that we be fully present. And when we're fully present, this actually has a quality of metta, or loving-kindness, because it requires that we adopt a friendly attitude towards whatever the present moment is offering us. We're no longer (coughs) pushing anything away. So an attitude of metta is part of the insight that we're cultivating. As most of you know, our path is a long one and a gradual one. And there are times when metta, loving-kindness practice, is exactly what we need. And then there'll be times when we can't even go there. So it's really important to respect where we are. So if metta doesn't come naturally at this point in your practice, then just be happy to, to plant a seed and know that it will flower when it's ready to do so. We often treat metta practice as jhana practice, concentration practice, repeating the phrases with the intention of becoming more and more concentrated. And what's useful here is that that the concentration that we develop in this way can skillfully be applied to our vipassana practice because these are the ideal conditions for insight to arise. Metta can also be a purification practice. And again, I'll quote to you from the Dhammapada, where the Buddha says, Do no evil, engage in what is skillful, and purify your mind. This is the teaching of the Buddhas. So this is the simplicity of the Buddhist teaching. We first have to practice virtue. Uh, If we're doing harm by killing, stealing, lying, or other misconduct, our meditation will not bear fruit. And engaging in what is skillful, the second thing that he says to do here, means that we've cultivated the wisdom to know what is skillful and leads towards freedom and what is unskillful and leads towards more suffering. And it also means that we've cultivated the mindfulness to make skillful choices before getting carried away with harmful behaviors. And then there's the third thing that the Buddha is saying to do, which is to purify the mind. And it's these concentration practices, like samatha, metta, following the breath, that purify the mind. So in this way, concentration practice actually opened the door to insight. Many of us struggle with self-judgment and self-criticism in our practice. And metta is really a wonderful antidote for that. It can transform our minds and our hearts especially that part of us that tends to be self-critical. 
And when we practice loving-kindness and compassion, we cultivate a transformation in our ability to be kind to ourselves. So on this theme that I have of uh, connection, let me read to you some excerpts from E.M. Forster from his novel Howard's End, which was written in 1910. It was, it was Forrester who coined the famous words, only connect. And he says, only connect. That was the whole of her sermon. Only connect the prose and the passion, and both will be exalted, and human love will be seen at its height. Live in fragments no longer. One might see life steadily and see it whole, group in one vision its transitoriness and its eternal youth. Connect. Connect without bitterness until all men are brothers. So with insight meditation, we connect with the present moment, with our felt experience, body, mind, and heart, here and now. And with loving-kindness meditation, we connect with our shared humanity. So, um, if it's okay with you, I'd like to take a little survey. Which, uh, if you're comfortable answering openly, I think is going to show us something interesting about our shared humanity. So, uh, and I encourage you to look around when I ask for a show of hands. So, if you would be so kind, would you please raise your hand if you have ever uh, looked in the mirror and not liked what you've seen. If you've ever lost a loved one. If you've ever been deeply humiliated or abused. I'm taking a course this fall in improvisation called Theater of the Oppressed. I'm a a grad student at um, the Graduate Theological Union in Berkeley. So this is the people in this class are, you know, not people you would think of as oppressed. On the contrary, we're very fortunate. But one of the things that impressed me most is that even among a group of really privileged uh, students, at the GTU, everyone, and I mean everyone, has experienced oppression. And many have experienced trauma. And this is nothing compared to people in war zones, to refugees who flee war, or to environmental refugees whose villages have completely dried up because of climate change. But what this is pointing to is our shared humanity. We often think that we're alone with our neurosis, with our suffering, but we're not. And the truth is that we don't have to believe everything we think, neither about ourselves nor about others. So one of the ways in which insight meditation helps is that we learn to see our thoughts arising and passing away moment after moment, and at some point, we realize we don't have to identify with them. And this is huge. We're not our thoughts. 
our conditioning may tell us that we're not lovable or that we're not good enough. But actually, these thoughts are only keeping us trapped in our preconceived ideas. And the present moment is much fresher than that. Our true selves in each present moment doesn't have to buy that story. We can be just who we are in this moment. So at some point with insight meditation practice, we realize that thoughts are just thoughts. Ephemeral bubbles popping up and then disappearing. And the import of this is that we no longer have to identify with our thoughts. We see them as produced by causes and conditions and we know this is not me, this is not who I am. So you see, this is the truth of not-self. So when you meditate, you sit down with the pure intention to just stay with the present moment, with the body, with the breath. And your pure intention is not to give free rein to your thoughts, but to come back again and again to just being here. And when you have this pure intention, it doesn't matter what comes along when you're here. Whatever it is, you don't have to judge it and you don't have to be seduced by it. So the instruction is, notice it, label it, thinking, for example, and gently, lovingly, come back to just being here with the breath. And so here's the connection with metta. Instead of trying to force thoughts out of your mind, you can replace them with a loving-kindness phrase. For example, may I be peaceful, or may I be centered, and then return to the breath. With insight, with wisdom, we see that we're thinking, oh, this is worry, this is grief, this is fantasizing. And seeing the mental state, usually unskillful, we also see that we have a choice. We can buy into it and perpetuate being fragmented, or we can replace it with curiosity and loving-kindness, compassion, openness. And now I come back lovingly to simply being here, to being with the breath. So this practice of metta, of loving-kindness, is a powerful way of transforming our reactivity transforming how we respond to what the present moment is offering us. And um, you may have heard of the advances in neuroscience which actually confirm what the Buddha said 2,600 years ago, that we are the heirs of our actions, and not just our bodily actions, but also the actions of our minds and hearts. If you practice mindfulness meditation, you know that when we lose our mindfulness, we just keep coming back. And we come back with a feeling of kindness for that person who's lost it. We come back with an open heart. And when we come back, it's useful to remember that we have a choice about how we respond to whatever's happening. You may have heard me say this before, but it bears repeating the well-known teaching of the Buddha that Whatever one frequently thinks and ponders upon, that will become the inclination of one's mind. 
And as you may know, this is borne out by contemporary neuroscience. What the Buddha means is that if we think angry thoughts, we'll tend to be irritable. If we practice acceptance of whatever the present moment is offering us, our mind will be inclined towards friendliness and ease. But if we treat ourselves with self-judgment, then we perpetuate a harsh state of mind. If, on the other hand, when the mind wanders, if we treat ourselves lovingly, then we open up new neural pathways, free of self-judgment and grounded in loving-kindness. So it's through this cultivation of metta towards ourselves that we change and ultimately revolutionize our instinctive worldview. They said uh, earlier, sometimes you may think that, or somebody may think that it's selfish to spend a day meditating. But, um, and, and, and it can be selfish if we continue to indulge in unskillful mind states. But on the other hand, Um, most of us do uh, indulge on skillful mind states for quite a while before we figure out how to cultivate and incline the mind towards more skillful mind states. So transforming yourself by turning away from what's unskillful and towards what leads to freedom, that isn't selfish in the least because it has enormous repercussions. When we can respond to our unskillful mind states with love rather than self-criticism, I believe that we're transforming the world. Because we're offering a real example that, yes, this is possible. We can greet everything, absolutely everything, with wisdom and compassion. If someone hurts us, we can arouse love because we know that this person is suffering. And this is the best they can do for now. So treating ourselves with loving-kindness has vast repercussions because if we can do this, then we can treat everyone with sympathetic kindness, regardless of their mistakes. And without this kind of wise self-love, our efforts to love others ultimately fail. So we cultivate loving-kindness towards ourselves because it's the ground from which we learn to love others. And this deep acceptance of ourselves opens the door for joy to arise. And it's a joy we can give away to other people. So the bottom line is that self-love is contagious. And we can become an example of what's humanly possible. But, of course, this self-love has to be purified of delusion. And that's why we need insight as well as loving-kindness. So uh, metta practice is also a practice of purification. And that's because the practice of loving-kindness will inevitably bring up where our hearts are blocked. Sometimes we practice metta and we feel all dried up. The heart just can't open. So it shows us where our limitations are. But if we stay with it, eventually we will open up. And it, it may take a long time. And this is where patience comes in. But eventually, with consistent practice, our hearts do open. And the loving-kindness that results becomes more and more generalized throughout our experience, 
So with metta practice, little by little, we uncover and let go of layers and layers of what's keeping us chained to our neurosis. We see what gets in the way, and we start to bring a loving heart to our experience and to ourselves. And this loving heart opens the door to letting go. So this is a huge change from bringing our ingrained resentment or self-pity to our experience. We let go of the instinct to kvetch. And the more we do this, the more the habit begins to reinforce itself. So as the Buddha says, whatever we frequently think about, however we frequently respond, this will become the inclination of our mind. So think of what this means. It means that we actually get to reinvent ourselves. With this practice, our default reaction to difficult situations becomes love and acceptance rather than judgment or ill will or fear or aversion or grasping. And when we're grounded in loving kindness, then we can open to the present moment and this opening becomes the doorway to insight. So you see how the two insight practice and loving kindness practice can go hand in hand. When loving kindness becomes our default reaction, it reaches out and it touches everyone. And if we want to make a difference in this world, this, I believe, is what really does equip us to serve. So I'd like to end with a a beautiful version of the Bodhisattva vow expressed by Diana Winston, who is a meditator in Los Angeles. As many of you know, as bodhisattvas, we vow to awaken not for ourselves, but for all beings. And Diana's vow is, may I be the living ground of love for all beings. So this is something we could try keeping in mind today throughout everything we do. May I be the living ground of love for all beings. And of course, all beings begins with us. So what would it be like to live each moment with this kind of vow? So we have some time now for discussions or comments or questions. Do you have the microphones? Don't everybody speak at once. Maybe we just feel like being quiet. (laughs) I'm happy about that.
have a question about insight. I don't think it's on, or if it is, you have to oh. hold it um, like is that this. Better? Yeah. Okay. Um, a question about meditation for insight versus meditation for stillness. What are some of the seeds that help if we're looking for insight to a particular challenge or situation versus meditation to just be still? Or are they actually one and the same? So if, if you wanted to put the emphasis on insight meditation, you would be curious about everything that comes up. And you might not just go back immediately to the breath or to wherever your, your object of meditation is. So uh, if something comes up, you may want to uh, notice it, recognize it, accept it, investigate it, and, uh, and, and see more, more what it is. So it's, it's, uh, it's an active interest in what's happening in the present moment. And you can also use insight meditation to um, fine-tune your understanding of impermanence. You know, that if you get... But this, this again, requires kind of a quiet mind to begin with. Um, you know, to actually see the thoughts, not after you've been lost in them for half an hour, but uh, as they arise. And the, 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 uh, the earlier you can get to seeing things as they arise, the um, earlier you get to make a choice about how you want to respond. So insight uh, is really the practice of, of uh, seeing things the way they are. And sometimes you can, you can also practice insight by choiceless awareness, just opening up to whatever comes along, whether it's sounds, whether it's an emotion, whether it's, you know, a pain in your knee. On the other hand, samatha meditation, calming meditation, tranquility, um, staying with the breath is one of the most useful ways of practicing that. And in fact, uh, mindfulness of breathing is the only meditation technique that we know that the Buddha himself actually practiced. Um, so that's it's very fundamental, but it's very uh, effective. And if we can learn to stay with the breath, um, then the mind starts calming down, and and the thinking mind can start taking a break once in a while. And when that happens, then that that quietness um, usually is accompanied by joy and uh, serenity. And, and that quiet mind uh, provides um, a really fertile ground for deeper insights to arise. Did, did that answer? Thank you for your question. Wow, that was a, a beautiful talk. Thank you. Um, there's one thing that um, I felt was very, um, you know, touched me very profoundly, but I'm still puzzled, and I was wondering if you could expand because it seems incredibly powerful. Um, when you said that um, 
when we greet a situation, um, like we don't accept a particular um, event or situation, that it was a form of aggression. And... Um, I was like, wow, I never thought about it that way. You know, I, I had a situation yesterday where I felt really um, badly and anxiously um, treated. And um, I, I guess I, you know, I thought about loving kindness and I was kind to myself, but... I didn't think about not accepting is kind of a form of aggression. Like I, I, I feel I still don't accept that situation. I feel um, angry at the person who um, kind of destroyed something beautiful I did. Thank you. That's a that's a beautiful question. So yes, um, if we can greet every moment as a friend and, and find our equanimity in that and, and really be accepting of it. Uh, it's, a, it's a wonderful way of um, being free ourselves and also offering freedom to whatever is happening, even if somebody's acting unkindly towards us. On the other hand, that doesn't mean that we should let ourselves be abused at all. Um, there's a wonderful story um, of Munindraji, who's this, this great Indian uh, teacher, and uh, a Western um, woman student went over to Calcutta and um, was practicing with him. And on her way home, um, it was a rainy night, and uh, this guy came along and tried to steal her purse. And... Uh, and so, you know, her question, well, what, what should I have done, you know? And Manindraji said, oh, with all the loving kindness in your heart, you should have taken your umbrella and hit him over the head. <laughs> so, you know, we have to know how to hold our ground with wisdom, and sometimes that wisdom means setting boundaries and not letting people take advantage of us. And so this is, this is again, where um, as we practice our... And it's mindfulness that really helps us to to get this wisdom. We start to see earlier and earlier what is the wise response in this situation. How how do I respond wisely? And also, how do I um, accept this situation and and also protect myself or protect my loved ones? Did that does that answer at all? Um, listening to what you just said what what came up for me was um, you know where there is disharmony in a conversation and for me Mostly what happens is it kind of, um, um, I, don't, I don't respond in the moment. You know, it sort of like bubbles up or it's like, ooh, that didn't feel good. Or 
Here's what I'd say if I were in, back in that moment. <laughs> um, and then I think, uh, all right, I'm going to have a conversation because now I'm thinking about it. It didn't quite hit me at the moment. And so, and then that's where I tend to dwell. So that becomes like the, hmm, how am I going to handle this? And so this doesn't always feel like there's a lot of freedom there. Um, and then if I go back to that conversation, it's like, why, why now? You know, this is in the past. And so I struggle with that a little bit. And I'd, I don't know if you have any thoughts about it, but how to, um, how to respond, like you said, skillfully. But it's usually not in the moment, I find. It usually sort of, um, like I said, it's sort of, I don't know, you know, manifests a little bit, or not manifest, but you know, it, I, I can't think of the word. It just doesn't happen at the moment. So. Yeah, it's a long path, you know. <laughs> I mean, if I if I look back in my life, I was so reactive. I mean, I would, it just, you know, I created a lot of pain by blowing up or getting hurt or, you know. I mean, it, it took a long time to try to find my my seat before... Uh, before I could react with more skill. But one thing the Buddha does say is that uh, it's never useful to, to get angry. Uh, and there are, there are ways of responding by, with you know, setting the boundaries that you need to set and being clear about you know, what your needs are um, and maybe even being frank about how, oh, you know, what you just said is, is hurtful to me. But without uh, giving in to the the tendency to to dish out the anger, it never it never really does any good. And so we learn little by little. And what we also have examples, you know, of you know some teachers we have, wonderful teachers we have here. You know, you don't see them getting angry very often. Although I must say, in my early training with with the, my Zen teachers, Suzuki Roshi, once in a while he would get angry, but it was a it was a teaching means. It wasn't like he was real angry like you or I might be. Uh, he was doing it just to kind of make a, a forceful point, shake us up a little bit. Did that did that answer at all? Yeah. Okay. I, just to follow up on that point, um, I was wondering, is it, is it that it's never useful to get angry, or is it more, is anger good as a signal, but then to work through it? I'm, yeah. What's I, a, I, I guess I, yeah. Obviously, suppression is not skillful. You know, we know that. If we, if we just bury it, it will start eating us up instead of eating up the person that we would have blown up at. Um, but uh, I think there are ways of like noticing anger arising before it really gets to a boiling point and being able to catch it in the early stage and then saying, okay, how do I really want to respond here? If I really want to transform this situation for the better, what can, what can I do that would be skillful?
So how long are we supposed to do this mindfulness practice in order for it to be effective? Bad question. <laughs> like how many years? I, well, okay, I'll tell you another story. And um, this is about the Dalai Lama. And um, there was somebody who was like really gung-ho about practice and practicing really hard. And, uh, and he had the wonderful opportunity to, to ask the Dalai Lama a question. And he said, well, how long does it take to get enlightened? And the Dalai Lama started crying. You know, it's not the point. We, it, 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 we all have different starting points. People who have had trauma in their childhoods have uh, really difficult starting points. People who are, you know, have had a lot of pain. Um, some of us are sort of born uh, with the gift to, to be able to concentrate. Other people have, have completely wild minds and it takes forever to get a little bit of concentration. So there's not one answer to that question that would be appropriate for everyone. And what we have to do is we have to find it out for ourselves, you know? I mean, the Buddha, he told us that we should be a light unto ourselves. That Those were his dying words. And so, how long it takes, there's no answer. It's one of those unanswerables. But, uh, you know, first of all, it's different for everybody. Uh, it depends on how you approach your practice, how regular your practice is. One thing that that Gil says is that uh, meditation really works. But it doesn't work if you don't do it. You know, so it's it's also how do you have a consistent practice, you know. um, But for most of us, it takes a lifetime. (laughs) It takes a long time. Hmm? That's exactly why it's a practice. <laughs> and, you know, in, in the Mahayana tradition, the, the teaching is that we're already enlightened anyway, that practice is enlightenment. The fact of just taking your seat and, and meditating, you're expressing enlightenment. So it's a kind of this dichotomous thinking of thinking that, uh, you know, samsara and delusion are something different from alight- enlightenment. Maybe not so. I have another question. How do we get a copy of what you just presented? <laughs> oh, it'll, it was be fabulous. The, it'll be up on the Audio Dharma, okay. um, assuming all goes well with, with, the, with, the, with the recording. Okay, great, thank you. You're very welcome. And the guided meditation should be up as well. I won't be, um, we're having Qigong today, and the last time we did a day long with Qigong, um, I hadn't planned to have them recorded, but people really wanted the the Qigong instructions recorded. But as you'll see, um, it really depends a lot on uh, the visual as well. So today we're not going to record the Qigong, but um, if you're interested, you can Google um, Meg Gawler Qigong on YouTube, and you'll find a 40-minute video that you can use to practice if you're interested. Well, perfect timing.
And anything else? Um, in relation to the question about how long does it take, um, I guess what helps me is not to think of it as a chore that's going to be finished. Um, so that's my thought about that. And then the other thing is I heard Bhikkhu Bodhi speak maybe a month ago, um, a renowned Buddhist scholar, and somebody asked, how do I know when I'm enlightened? And Bhikkhu Bodhi answered, I don't know, I'm not enlightened. <laughs> and, you know, this is one of the most revered scholars and monk for, I don't know, 50 years. So, you know, it's just another reminder for me that it's not really about an end point, it's about a process. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, we do have in the Pali Canon many references to the four stages of enlightenment. Um, but it's often the case that the practitioner... Uh, uh, becomes a stream mentor, for example, and doesn't even know it. It's but the teacher will see it. So sometimes, you know, you you actually you make some progress, uh, and you're not even aware of it, but it's very obvious to your teacher. And uh, yeah, I, this is this is so true that you know we're here for the practice, and even if we just get, you know, incrementally. A little bit wiser, a little bit kinder. That's pretty good. And also there will be ups and downs, as most of you know, you know, and plateaus and and even periods of despair sometimes. So the, the trick is to stick with it. Okay, now we have um, walking meditation. Thank <clears throat> you.